Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I am your host. Welcome to season three of the podcast. This is episode number one of the third season. If you are coming into this fresh, I will give you a brief overview of what has taken place before now so that you are at least aware of where we are here. So season one, I went through a whole chronological overview of the evolution of the systems of society that we live in. This would be our economic system, governmental systems, the education system, all the way to their origins, all the way up through alternative movements that are going on today and getting into the future. Season two took another look at society and the evolution of it by looking at a pattern and a parallel time frame in history, and that would be the Reformation. So I mirrored the Reformation and a lot of the things going on there from theology to philosophy to war and other aspects of history, technology, and all of these things related that to nowadays, and that created some really good parallels, got a lot out of that. The first half of season two was interviews. The second half was me getting into more of the specific topics on my own. Then in between season two and this episode, I had a bit of an interim period where I covered some other topics that were related to the things that are discussed on this podcast, but didn't really fit into any of the more formalized seasons and covered some more personal opinion stuff as well, some assessments of the current times that we are living in things like COVID, that kind of thing. And then the second half of this interim period has been a series of interviews kind of highlighted, I guess, by some interviews with Finn Armani about the dim age theory that he has and that uh, unexpectedly got us into things related to uh, spirit, the spiritual world, I guess, and things of that sort, a little more philosophical. And there were some other extremely good interviews in there as well. So if you haven't gotten through all of those, listen to every single one. They are all very good. And especially if you've listened to all of season one and season two, it ties a lot of things together and draws on a lot of those same subjects. So now we're getting into season three. And the goal here is to do some similar things. We're still assessing how we live in our current society and the systems that we live under. We are still looking at some historical parallels and patterns and drawing that to modern times. We are still looking at things from both a philosophical perspective as well as a hands-on perspective. And so that's what I'm doing. But with season three, the focus will be on looking at the early Christian church, early as in just after Christ, like the time of the disciples and and maybe the generation after that at the most. So the very early days of the Christian church and looking at that as a movement that has many similarities to what I believe most of the listeners to this podcast can really relate to. So it's things like having a very moral stance that is very values-based, that goes against the culture of the society that we live in that has a negative outlook on the state and the things that the state is doing 
Also, there is some negative feedback coming in from the state and from the culture and the society. But this group that is based on values and morals and a specific ideology and philosophy, this group, whether it be us or the early church, this group is bound together and helps each other and finds a way to have some sort of organization without getting involved with and becoming a part of the systems that the society is structured around in that secular hierarchy. The first subjects that I will cover these first few episodes are going to be more philosophical or more theological, actually, to be more accurate. And then the more historical comparisons will come probably more at the end, because that's really just the way it needs to happen. We need to lay the groundwork, set up a framework for what the values are. Where does this morality come from? How did the early church view the world? How did they assess reality? What was their worldview? Why did they make the decisions they did? And why were they then put into the position they were in? And why did they treat that the way that they did? And obviously, the way that they treated that ended up being extremely successful. So understanding that a little bit more, I think, will be very enlightening and helpful to us, as well as really draw some direct parallels between what many people who are involved in things like agorism, anarchism, libertarianism, voluntarism, these types of groups and people Uh, The ideologies and morality and philosophies that they have are really in line with a lot of this core stuff that the early church was oriented towards. So that's why I'm going to do this. If you are not a religious person or not a Christian, I will say that that is okay. And as long as you are open to listening to this content... I think you will still get a lot out of it. Again, the whole point is relating this to a secular movement of modern times. That would be something along the lines of all those isms that I just mentioned. So there is this secular application that will really be the focus, but there are aspects of theology, of a spirit, the spiritual realm of a religion, of Christianity, and these kinds of things. So just as a heads up, that's where we're going. And these are the types of things that I will be discussing. So take it as you will. Now, moving on into this first episode, this first episode, I wanted to be on the idea of the kingdom of God. So especially with the first Venermani interview that I did, that that subject really came up a lot, and that idea really came up a lot, and we, we fleshed out a lot of things about that. But I really want to break that down into what that is is and how that was viewed as a concept for, again, the early church, for these earliest believers and the people who started this movement. So the idea here is that there is a creator of all things. There is God. There is only one God. There is only one creator of all things that can make something out of nothing. That is kind of the fundamental principle here. And God has certain characteristics and certain principles that he wants life and reality and existence to fall in line with. And with this, God has instituted certain hierarchies, certain aspects of order, 
And these are manifested in the material world that we live in, both through human connections and institutions, as well as just through nature. And so in one way, the kingdom of God would then be everything, because if God created all things and all things fall under his direction, then all things would be a part of his kingdom. And that would be a broad way to look at it, but it's not very applicable, and that's not where we're going here. The idea is that there is an order of things, these principles of God, that some fall in line with and some don't. Those that fall in line, let's talk about humanity here, people who choose to fall in line with these principles of God and choose to set God as their leader and ruler and will abide by his principles, those people are part of the kingdom of God. Anyone else who does not want to put themselves under God and God's principles would be not a part of the kingdom of God. So those are really the two camps. So basically, the kingdom of God is made up of individuals who voluntarily accept God as their sovereign. That is the kingdom of God camp. And then everything else is apart from that again. Now, I will look kind of at how this goes through history, at least looking at the biblical account here. But uh, another aspect here that is pretty important is that this is a concept. The kingdom of God is a concept that is not bound by time. So the idea here is that the kingdom of God has always existed and it always will exist. And throughout that entire time period and outside of time, the core concept is always the same. So even though there are many different manifestations, many different configurations, many different aspects that could be physical, could be chronological, all of these things exist and have existed, all of these different kind of versions, manifestations, these types of things of the kingdom of God, the core principles of what defines the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is, has been the same throughout all time and outside of time. It is a timeless concept. It's unbound by time. To bring this concept out a little more, I will give you two other examples that are very similar in this aspect of being unbound by time and still a part of the theology and belief system of the early church. So one of those would be God's principles or God's law. This is something that is outside of time. It's unbound by time. Like I mentioned earlier, God created all things and has an order that he established within all reality, within all creation. And so his order of how things should be, how things ought to be, the principles of God, his His law, so to say, that is something that is a timeless thing. But this has been manifested throughout all time in many different ways. So you have the fundamental basic laws of nature. That is one aspect. You have prophecy as another aspect. You have revelation as another aspect. You have Mosaic law. You have Yeshua, uh, Jesus, who taught on all of these principles and concepts. You have the scriptures, the Bible. You have other writings. You have all of these different things that expound on, explain, give 
a representation of what God's principles are, but they are all based on the exact same thing. It's all one core principle. It's one core thing. And that thing is outside of time, despite there being all these other manifestations and examples of it. And those examples exist in specific time periods and in specific physical ways. But again, the concept of the principles of God is something that is outside of the physical reality and outside of time. This specific example is something that I will be elaborating on in a future episode. I'll do a whole episode on the natural order and really deriving what the fundamental or a priori axioms and principles are for all of reality, for all of existence, all of the universe, and that will be a totally different episode. But uh, moving on to the other example of something that is timeless as a concept that would be relevant to the early church and something that probably will help this make more sense to those who are not all that familiar with biblical theology, that would be the aspect of the crucifixion. Now, I will give a random side note here, but very relevant. I will say the name Yeshua. This is instead of the name Jesus, which most everybody in the English-speaking world is much more familiar with, but that was not his actual name. His actual name was Yeshua. And if that is something that we can easily pronounce and easily understand, and that was his name, I personally feel that it is best to use people's names instead of anglicizing them when it is unnecessary, at least. I know there's some names that we just couldn't really pronounce in other languages, that kind of thing. This is an English-speaking podcast, but Yeshua, that's an easy one. So I'm going to stick with that. When you hear Yeshua, that is Jesus, and that is just the name that I am using, again, because that was his name. Now, getting back to the point of the crucifixion as something that is outside of time, and unbound by time. And it's not necessarily the crucifixion. It is the aspect of sacrifice there. So the idea here is that the crucifixion did take place at a specific time in a specific place. It was a physical event, but the core aspect of this being a mechanism for creating and allowing right standing with God for those who are a part of his kingdom, that core aspect of that being a mechanism for right standing is an aspect that is totally unbound by time. So biblically, that is the only way that people can have right standing with God. However, logically, you should be able to think this through pretty easily. What about everybody that existed prior to Yeshua being a living living human being on earth? Well, if that sacrifice was the only way to have a mechanism for creating right standing for humanity, then either everyone born before him had no chance whatsoever, or this is a principle unbound by time and outside of time, or it's just not true. So it's one of the three. We're going to go with the middle option here. So while I'm not going to get into the full theology of what that sacrifice is and why it was completely necessary and all of these different things, I will at least relate it to the relevant aspects here of being a core principle that's unbound by time. So the idea here is that anyone who was born prior to this event happening would have been 
relying on this event or having faith that it will happen without even knowing specifically what this mechanism was going to be. So, for example, in the Old Testament, there are many examples where specific people had faith that God would make a way for them to have right standing with him. They knew that they were not good enough, that they were sinners, that they did not perfectly fall in line with God's principles, with the order of the kingdom of God, but they believed that God would make a way for them because God loved them, and they had faith that there would be a mechanism for that, without even knowing what that mechanism would be, when it would happen, how it would take place, anything like that. And so the idea, biblically, is that faith is the key component to access that mechanism to then gain right standing with God. And again, that can take place chronologically before or after the physical manifestation of that mechanism has occurred, the crucifixion, but it is all based on the exact same principle, that same mechanism, that aspect that is outside of time. So again, there are many things in biblical theology that are like this. The kingdom of God is one of them. Now, a logical place to go from here would be, well, why is this necessary? Why is it necessary to have two kingdoms? Why is it necessary to have this mechanism for right standing with God? Why is any of this necessary? And why is the kingdom of God not always ruling? If it is God's kingdom and God created everything and God created the order that the whole universe exists in, then why in the world is there any other kingdom except for his that he created? Because If there is another one, then it had to have stemmed from God, if God is the prime mover, if God is the very first thing. And so that is a very legitimate question. So the answer to this is something that you have probably heard before and fits in very well with an ideology of something like libertarianism, voluntarism, these types of things, and that would be free will. That is the most important aspect here. And the way this works out is that the only way for perfection, the only way to have a perfect world would be to allow free will. Otherwise, you don't have a perfect world because everything is robotic and in a way mechanized and meaningless. If things don't have free will, then they're just going to do what they are created to do and told to do, and that's it. So there is much less meaning there. So the way to have a perfect world would be a world with meaning, with choice, with unique individuals and characteristics. And the only way to have this is to have free will. Now, the only way to have free will is to have mutually exclusive options to choose from. Otherwise, there is nothing to choose. Therefore, there would be no way to exercise free will because you would just automatically pick the only option that's there. And that is no different than not having free will at all. If you have the free will to choose one thing, that's not much of a free will option. So if you do have the opportunity to make a choice, to make a decision, to choose one path or another then you automatically will have the creation of one group who chooses to go in line with God's principles and his order, and one group that chooses not to, to go against his principles and his order. 
So you automatically have to have these two camps, these two kingdoms, and if you are going to have free will at all. Now, again, you could say that, well, what if it was all the kingdom of God and you could choose to manifest these principles and live them out in this way or that way or this other way? then you still are an automaton in relation to following his principles as a whole. You still don't have a free will choice not to follow his way. And so the only way to have free will here is to have a different option that is mutually exclusive. So there you go. That is why you have to have these two camps. Now, the only way for perfection is for everything to fall in line with the natural order of things, with the perfect way, with God's principles, all things must be bound by love and in life. These are principles that you would have to have, and everything would have to choose to follow in order to have a perfect world. Now, obviously, we don't have a perfect world. Not everybody chooses these things. And so, if you look at the biblical example here, in the end, when everything is said and done, there is a new heaven and a new earth, and it is combined as one with God in some way ruling over everything and everything being in line with his principles and his ways, and there really is only one kingdom. But again, the only way to get that and have that be to be real would be the very first thing I mentioned would be to allow free will. And then if you follow that progression of thought there where you automatically have two camps, then what happened to the other camp? Well, the other camp has to go away. The other kingdom has to be defeated. It has to be excluded in some way. And so, again, I'm not going to get into the deep theology of hell and afterlife and all these kinds of things. Some people believe drastically different things than others, and so I'm not going to get into that. But just for a brief idea of some of this, the range of thought here is some would believe that anyone that does not participate in and who is not a citizen of the kingdom of God will be eternally punished. That would be one view of it. One view would be that hell is just separation from God. So they are in a different place where there is no access to God or citizens of his kingdom. So they are excluded and confined somewhere else in order for perfection to be possible in the rest of existence. The other option would be that anyone who is not a citizen of the kingdom of God, basically they die and everything is over. There's some sort of judgment or something that would then place them as either a part of his kingdom or not. And if not, then they are destroyed, they're gone, nothingness. And that is another option. And there are many other things that people believe. But the overall point here is that in the end, you end up with the kingdom of God, everybody who is in line with these principles, and they have chosen through true free will to be a part of this kingdom and to follow these principles. And everybody that exists is in this camp, is a part of this kingdom. So you can end up with perfection, with a perfect world, if you go through all of these different steps. And that's really the only way to get there unless you get rid of free will. And again, that's not something that works in most of our definitions of perfection. And so that would be the idea, the overall concept of the kingdom of God. Now, to get into the 
a biblical historical narrative here of how this plays out in time chronologically. Again, like I said, these things do play out chronologically in time in physical realities with different manifestations, and I can go through that pretty easily here. So the idea here is that the very first manifestation of the kingdom of God would be Adam in the Garden of Eden. And so you have one man who is a part of God's order and following his principles. And it seems like it's a pretty basic, I guess, manifestation of what this looks like and what free will is. But then at some point, Adam and Eve decide to go against God's principles. They are influenced by some sort of fallen spiritual being, and they choose to go against God. Now, does that mean that God's kingdom just disappears? Well, no, it is an eternal concept that is unbound by time. It is always there and always will be. And so the idea is that The goal is to, again, bring everything towards perfection, that that is the ultimate goal, perfection with free will. So now that it did not work out that way with the first humans or possibly just this first example of some of the first humans, again, it depends on your interpretation of many different things that we will not get into, but given that it didn't work with this one specific example, then it spreads to all humanity. Instead of it being one individual, it's, well, will all humanity then fall under these principles and live by these principles and be a part of the kingdom of God? And All humanity had that choice. All humanity had some direct connection to God and his principles and his ways. And all humanity basically fell away and did not make that choice. Now, we do have the example here of fallen angels that come into play or fallen spiritual beings that come in. And that's the idea of Nephilim, the giants gets very interesting, but we are not getting into that aspect. It's just interesting that the influence of fallen spiritual beings is coming into play multiple times here. But the idea here is that by the time of the flood, all humanity is judged as being not a part of the kingdom of God. And again, if you need perfection and you want perfection, how do you get that? Well, you have to have free will and you can't have that other camp. And so that's the idea of the flood is to basically wipe the slate clean. And it's not just humanity. It is also these fallen spiritual beings, whoever they are, whatever they are, that kind of thing. There is this other dimension going on here as well. So then you have the flood and we start back over again as one person and one group. And that would be Noah, just like it was Adam and Eve. Now it's Noah and his family. And you go back to them and their offspring trying again and seeing if they will be a part of God's order and the kingdom of God. And sure enough, shortly after this, at least in the biblical account, you get the story of the Tower of Babel. And At this point in time, you basically see that all humanity, instead of doing what God told them to do, go out, multiply, fill the earth, you know, basically follow my ways and go out and be my representatives on this earth and be the ones who steward this earth, take care of the earth. These are the things that humanity was told to do by God, and instead they chose to all group together and pick a leader, a king, that would be Nimrod, and basically it sounds at least, and depending on who you read, Josephus would be a good example here, uh, the 
likelihood is that Nimrod was a king that brought everybody together to build this tower to create a kingdom of his own that would be able to withstand and overtake the kingdom of God. So the idea here is that they were going to build a giant tower in this giant city and the feats of man would overcome the power of God. So the idea here is that if you have a tall enough tower, then you can't get washed away by a flood because you're so high up. Not only that, in their minds, the gods lived up in the sky. The gods always lived on mountains and in gardens way up high or in the heavens, in the skies. They were stars, whatever. So the idea, again, is if you build a tall enough tower, then we as humans can get up there with the gods. And if all humanity unites all together, then we can create things and evolve to a point that we become gods. And that's kind of the overall idea here is that instead of submitting to God, the original God, as a sovereign, instead of that, humanity chooses to follow a human leader and form human institutions and become gods from their human beginnings. And so the idea here then is that uh, God judged them to not be falling in line with his ways, but he didn't wipe them out completely. Uh, God, and there is a reference here where it seems like it's God and other gods or other spiritual beings, a divine council, so to say, they make a decision of breaking things up. And basically, let's try this again. And so uh, there are different languages, people are confused, people do end up spreading out and filling the earth and going other ways. But again, all of humanity has not chosen to follow the kingdom of God. That doesn't seem to be a popular choice here. And so we go back to a single man yet again. And this would be Abraham. And so you have the idea of Abraham being a single man and starting another manifestation, physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. And from the lineage of Abraham, you then go to a people group that would be the Israelites. And this is kind of interesting because you have them failing in many different ways. You've got the idea that is given to us in the book of Judges. That would be that basically they had no kings, they had no rulers. Each tribe, there are 12 tribes of Israelites, and they all did what was right in their own eyes. And at times, different leaders would come into leadership positions, and they would basically uh, win battles against neighboring peoples and guide the people and get them in line with the principles of God, these types of things, and these were known as the judges, these leaders were. But then typically as they died or went away, then the people ended up going about and doing what was right in their own eyes, which was generally the opposite of what was right according to the principles of the kingdom of God. So you have that failure as a people group, but then you then turn into a nation as a whole. 
So you had Abraham as an individual that did not rely completely on God. And that's where you have the idea of Isaac and Ishmael. And he chose to have a child with another woman and not his wife, like God said he should. And uh, that didn't go well for him. So you have the individual that fails. You have the people group, the Hebrews that fail. Then you have an actual nation, the nation of Israel. And they fail right off the bat because they say, give us a king. We want a human king to rule over us. And God says, this is a rejection of me, but I will let you guys do it anyway. But just just keep this in mind. You will be taxed. Uh, they will take your sons to fight and die in wars. They will take your daughters. They will take your things, your goods, your crops, all of these things. It's not going to go well for you. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do this anyway. It sounds great. We're going to be just like everybody else. And so that was the choice they made. Instead of being an independent people, a part of the kingdom of God, they wanted to be a part of the kingdom of man, like everybody else around them did. And so basically you had the failure of the nation of Israel. So again, individual people group, nation, what's left here? Well, you've got the Hebrew religion that continues on. This is what ends up becoming Judaism. So there still is a Hebrew religion that does follow God's principles, but by the time you get to, let's say, the time of Yeshua, most of Judaism has become fairly corrupted. So again, this group, this religion fails again. And so what do we go back to? Well, again, you go back to a single person and, you know, we start the cycle back over again and the single man would be Yeshua. But this is where things change because Yeshua does not fail and his kingdom does not end. And so you end up in a position where the pattern is broken. And now there are two separate kingdoms, both based on free will, running in parallel at the same time. And those who choose to be a part of the kingdom of God now in this final manifestation of the kingdom on earth as a physical reality, those people are one group, and then everybody else that chooses to not be a part of the kingdom of God, they are in the other group. But uh, the former group, group one, the kingdom of God, that group does not fail and cannot fail. And again, it never does. The kingdom of God exists outside of time. It's unbound by time. And if we go back to this whole series of events here, you had Adam Obviously, there was still a remnant that followed after God when you get to the time of the flood, because you have Enoch as a good example, where Enoch was uh, one who walked with God, who was righteous, and um, the impression that is given in the Bible is that Enoch does not even die, that God just takes him away from the earth in this physical reality, and he possibly does not even die. So you do have a remnant that is following after God. When you get to the time of the flood, you have Noah. Noah was found to be righteous. Maybe he was the only one, but still there is a remnant. When you get to the idea of the Tower of Babel and things that happened after that, and then you get to Abraham, well, Abraham wasn't the only one. You have him running into somebody called Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest of the kingdom of God. There was still a remnant that was going on in that time. When you have 
the judges, the time of the judges and the time of the nation of Israel, there was still a remnant that followed after God's ways. Even when Israel was in um, exile, there's a whole uh, series of verses about the remnant. There is a prophet that comes to God and says, you know, they're killing all of us and I'm the only one left. And he's like, no, there, there is still a remnant. There's still a group. So you have this coming all the way through, even when you get to the uh, the, re- the religion of Judaism in the time of Yeshua, there are Jews. There are plenty of Jews. Heck, all of the early Christians were Jews. And they were this remnant that were actually still following the true principles of God and not just this r- religion that was not a part of the principles, even if they did follow the specific letter of the law that was given by God. They didn't follow the actual principles of God So there's a big difference there. But there was a remnant that actually did. And you have Yeshua talking to some of these. You have examples of this in the New Testament after the crucifixion. And so there's always this remnant. Well, when we get to this time of the early church, the early church is the remnant. And now we have a manifestation of the kingdom of God that is not bound into a specific family. It's not a specific people group. It's not a specific nation. It's not a specific religion in the sense that Judaism was. This is a new thing. This manifestation of the kingdom of God is made up of individuals of all different nationalities, all different genders, all different backgrounds, all different people who have all voluntarily chosen to follow the principles of the kingdom of God. And again, that's where I say it's not a religion in the same way that Judaism is. Uh, The idea of Judaism, at least in Yeshua's time, and this was something that he harped on over and over again, was that they followed the letter of the law. So the law was a manifestation, Mosaic law was a manifestation of the principles of the kingdom of God. But it was just a manifestation of it. At the core was the actual concept of the principles. And there was this religion that ended up evolving out of that where they followed the specific laws. And they even made their own laws and made thousands of other laws on top of Mosaic law that they thought that they had to follow. And this is what you had to do. These were all your rules. And they followed the letter of that law to a T. But they missed out on the core principles. So one would ask, are they actually following the kingdom of God or not? And that's not a call that I can or will make. But the idea here is that this new manifestation of the kingdom of God is about these principles. It is about the law of God, not the Mosaic law, but the principles of God, the law of the kingdom of God. And so this is the version that we have today. And that would be the version of the early church where you have this parallel group that's going at the same time as everybody else, basically all of humanity choosing a different path. But anyone in all of humanity still has the option of changing their citizenship to the kingdom of God. And pretty much you would end up being a dual citizen. So if you are a citizen of the United States of America, and then you decide to also be a part of the kingdom of God, then you then have dual citizenship, a secular citizenship, as well as your citizenship with the kingdom of God. And so it is something that 
exists at the same time, runs in parallel. There is even some overlap in a way, but I hesitate to use that word there. And this is where the early church finds themselves. This is a group of mostly Jews who have converted to being citizens of the kingdom of God, but most of them still have dual citizenship. The first Christians were still Jews, and they still followed Jewish culture and Jewish practices, but they also were citizens of the kingdom of God. So they had this dual citizenship in both ways. Then as they went out and spread the idea, the concepts, this good news about how anyone can be a part of this kingdom, and these are the ways, these are the teachings, these are the principles, this is how you can participate as they went out and spread this good news to all different kinds of people, different races, different nationalities, different people groups, different cultures, all of this stuff, then those people as individuals could choose voluntarily to become a part of the kingdom of God as well. But then they maintained their earthly citizenship, their secular citizenship with their culture, typically. Now, you couldn't maintain a religious citizenship in two kingdoms because Again, this is a mutually exclusive choice. The whole point of free will, going back to that argument, is that you can choose to be a part of the kingdom of God or you can choose not to be. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, you follow God's principles. If you are worshiping other gods or following a totally different theology or something like that, then you're obviously not following God's principles. So you can't be a part of the kingdom of God and a part of a different formal religion at the same time or believe in... Uh, I, I guess, or worship other gods. Now, believe in and worship, totally different thing. Side note here, I've referenced it before. The biblical idea is that there is a divine council. There is a spiritual world. There are other powers and principalities. There are other gods. And I would say that in the sense of little g gods, and there's only one big g god, the most high. And he is the one who actually created all things. But there are other powerful spiritual beings that uh, most people, most of humanity throughout time have referred to as gods, and they do exist. So to say that, oh, there's no such thing as other gods, well, that's not really true, at least from a biblical perspective. And you can say that and still be a part of the kingdom of God. But if you choose to follow after one of these other gods instead of the most high, that's when you start running into some major issues and you leave the kingdom of heaven and go into the kingdom of man or the kingdom of whatever this spiritual entity is. A symbol that is often used for the kingdom of God, and I've used it in previous episodes as well, would be the symbol of the tree. Now, I referenced a future episode I'll do on the natural order. Part of that will be symbolism in nature, and a tree will be one of those symbols. So I'll get into that a little more there. But the idea of the tree of the kingdom of God is one that is biblical. The symbolism of a tree is used over and over again in Old Testament and New. And the idea here is that the tree of the kingdom of God is a tree that never dies. It's this eternal tree that grows and it has its roots way down. It has its branches and leaves way out. It is growing high, growing tall and branching out. And it is a fruit producing tree. Now the catch here is that even though the tree does not die, the branches are pruned and branches do die and fall off. And there are some branches that do not produce fruit. And the idea here is, well, what's the point? 
in branches that don't produce fruit. Well, they get pruned off. And so the healthy fruit producing branches are the ones that are still there. And so if you view the tree as the kingdom of God, then you can view fruit as actions and evidences in reality of the kingdom of God, the principles of God being acted on by an individual on this earth. So if I am a branch then the things that I do, the actions that I participate in that are in line with the natural order of things, with the kingdom of God, with God's principles, these actions would be the fruit. Good things would come of that, and those good things are the visible fruit, and those are good for others. Others can pick the fruit and eat the fruit. It is sustenance. It is pleasant to taste and to eat. There are many good things that come from this fruit, but that is fruit. It is a physical reality. You can look at somebody, look at their life, and see what the fruit of their life is. Is their life full of chaos and despair and all of these other things. Well, that fruit is not one that is in line with the tree of the kingdom of God. The tree of the kingdom of God is a healthy tree that produces good fruit. And when there are branches that do not produce good fruit, there is pruning that does take place. And so you end up in the end with a very healthy, very productive tree. There are many allusions to something similar, talking about an olive branch and the nation of Israel, the Israelites as a people group, and then the Gentiles is basically everybody that's not an Israelite. And you've got this idea of the Gentiles being grafted into the tree. So you had this tree and it had these branches, but uh, these branches were the Israelites and they basically failed to follow God's principles as you know I laid down in that chronological historical, biblical look at how the kingdom of God has played out in time. One of those examples is the Israelites, and that, again, didn't go well. So you have these branches that are cut off, and then you have new branches grafted in, and that would be the Gentiles, everybody else. Basically, you know, it went from being a people group or a nation to being anyone and everyone anywhere. And that's the idea of the current kingdom of God. And so those branches were grafted in, but there is this biblical principle of eventually the natural branches of Israel that were cut off will end up getting grafted back in and they will be producing fruit. And so a warning is given to make sure that you are producing fruit because If you are not, then these branches that got grafted in can easily be pruned back out, and they can easily be replaced by the natural branches that were already there to begin with. And so there's this idea here where there are many allusions to previous manifestations biblically of the kingdom of God, whether that be Adam or whether that be Noah or whether that be uh, the nation of Israel or the Hebrews or Judaism, all of these things, all of these different manifestations from different times of the kingdom of God as a physical reality on earth, they get alluded to over and over and over again in the Bible, and it's all about this concept, this core concept that is timeless of the kingdom of God. Now, there is another warning that is not quite as explicit, but it is very apparent when you look at the narrative and at the chronological history here, and that would be the trap of liberation theology. And this would be the idea of, oh, well, we are this oppressed people group, we the kingdom of God, and in all of these different time periods, and even now, 
they are not the majority and dominant group within humanity. And so the idea here is that we are being oppressed by this other group or by all of society or all of humanity, whatever the idea here is. And so we want to be liberated from that. And that is our goal is liberation from these oppressions and these oppressors. And so that we will be the ones that will be in charge and be dominant. And we will be the ones who will be able to spread the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God will rule and all of these things, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it doesn't really work out that way. So the idea here is that this liberation theology always leads to corruption every single time. Every time you have a manifestation of the kingdom of God that is set free from the oppression and restrictions that exist in this physical reality in their time, that moment of freedom is always the high point. And from there, it always goes down. So if you think of something like the liberation of the Hebrews from Egypt, the idea here is that as soon as they left, that was the high point. They were all a part of the kingdom of God. And it was not just the the people group of the Hebrews. It was a mixed multitude is what is recorded. So it's also probably other Egyptians, other peoples of other cultures. There's a big group of people that leave. It's all voluntary. And they all choose to follow this path in this way and to leave. And they are completely liberated. So, hey, you would think this is the beginning of something great. And then as soon as they get out from under the Egyptians, then they basically fall away from God's principles and from the way that he tells them to live. And this happens over and over and over again. And so it seems that every time the group, and we can even say this about the early church. So looking forward chronologically from this historical parallel that I'm drawing from the very early church. If you go a few hundred years into the future, the Christian church ends up taking over Rome. They are no longer the ones being oppressed. They are the ones that are dominant. They are the ones that are in charge. And so you'd think, oh, you know, the great Roman Empire is something that is under and a part of the kingdom of God, well, then the kingdom of God rules, and that is a wonderful thing. Well, no, no, it did not turn out that way. It turned out that the Christian religion became corrupted, and the Roman Empire, even under uh, so-called Christian rulership and direction, uh, did not really follow that, and it ended up falling anyway. And so that didn't really work out. There's another theme there and in other places, let's say when the Israelites asked for a king, where whenever you mix the kingdom of God with God as the sovereign and God as the one who has ordained all of these principles, when you mix that with man-made institutions and hierarchies, always corrupts and it is always a bad thing. So God specifically says, you setting up a king over yourselves, a human king, and choosing to do this is a rejection of me. So that's pretty direct. So if you believe the Bible and you believe that those were the words God, then it's very clear that he is saying, no, having a human king is wrong because I am supposed to be your sovereign. And I've already told you all the principles to live by. And so you should do it. And that's it. And if not, then you're not a part of my kingdom. And that's basically it. But they chose to have a king. And if you look at the list of the Israelite kings, historically and biblically, 
almost every single one of them are pretty horrible in many different ways. Even one of the best, you could say David, still does some very horrible things and fails so many times and is not a very good king on many accounts and definitely not a very good follower of the principles of the kingdom of God, even though he is said to be a man after God's own heart and he is upheld as a very positive example. So even one of the best is not very good. And the failures of David all stem back to the fact that he was the king. That is what gave him the opportunity to uh, basically have an affair, to have a man murdered, to do all these other things that uh, end up happening later as well. But it's all related to him taking on this uh, earthly man-made role of hierarchy here. And this would obviously be the case with Rome, when the church mixed with the state of Rome and became a ruling man-made institution, that didn't go over very well. You can even look forward from that and look at the next cycle where you have things like the inquisitions that were going on and the church being the dominant player around the time just prior to the Reformation. Go back to season two of this podcast and kind of get a lot of those examples. Things weren't going well for the church. It was pretty corrupt at that point in time. Time, and it was very intermingled with the man-made institutions that were ruling on the earth at that period in time. And so, again, it's this idea of uh, the liberation theology as well as mixing the church and state. All of these things always go wrong. The idea is that it should be this parallel kingdom that is focused on truth. It is focused on action. It is focused on individuals, and it is focused on community. And this kingdom, if it is focused on these things, if there are core principles, there are moralities, there are foundational principles that are followed, which by definition is what the kingdom of God is, it is individuals making a free will choice to follow these specific principles and putting them into action. Again, they have to bear fruit. You can't just say that you follow these things. You have to actually do them if you are a part of this kingdom. And you do that as an individual, totally voluntary, always is. And when you do, you start building a community of other individuals that are also a part of this kingdom. Other brothers and sisters in Christ would be the phrase that many people use here. And so you build out this community all based on individuals and individual decision-making and free will, and it's built, its foundations are on truth and action. And this kingdom grows naturally, all on its own. When you have this in existence, it naturally grows, and it should naturally avoid taking on hierarchical roles in man-made institutions. It should naturally avoid trying to liberate itself and trying to get involved with the state. And uh, yeah, we'll get into why this is a direct contradiction with the principles of the kingdom of God, but uh, that is kind of the thing here. So uh, hopefully you can see as I go over all of these things that if you are someone who believes in things like voluntarism, in liberty and freedom, and these types of things. If you've gone down that rabbit trail, let's say the libertarian rabbit trail that's all about liberty, well, it automatically leads to anarchy because you cannot have 
a totally free, a totally liberty-based society if you have a state, because the state is force and coercion, which is the opposite of liberty and freedom. And that's just the way it is. And so it's a very similar thing here. When we look at the kingdom of God, you can't have this mix of the church and state because it just fundamentally contradicts the actual principles and philosophy. And so that is also why I am really going to flesh out these ideas of the philosophy, the ideology, these principles, and that would be in the form of theology a lot of times with the early church, but I really need to get that hammered down so that we know what this foundation is and why it is so contradictory to other options that they would have had open to themselves and other options that did get chosen later on chronologically in time and that ultimately did not work out very well and why that didn't work out very well. So that's kind of what we're doing here. I will stop this episode here. I think that's a decent place to end it. And the next one will kind of pick up on this theme that I've left off with. And the next episode should be on idealism and anarchy. So again, it'll pick up on this thread of what is the ideal and what, how would we assess the idea of anarchism and apply the different options of different political philosophies and the impacts of these, repercussions of these. How does this mesh with the idea of the kingdom of God or having a parallel society kind of a thing? And I'll get into those types of topics in the next episode. So I would like to also say thank you very much to all of these supporters, especially those who are supporting financially, either through Patreon or through Subscribestar. I did have a new patron on Patreon. And so I will specifically say thank you very much to John. I really appreciate your support as well as everybody else's. There were a few people, I think two people ended up dropping off or maybe three over the past uh, month or so, which is, again, perfectly fine. If you want to join up and sign on to one of these platforms just to get some perks and then leave after a month, I don't look at that as being a horrible thing. That is perfectly fine. You can do that. And I know some people had done that for the Venermani interviews in particular. There's a lot of draw for that. So some people signed up temporarily to get access to the full interviews. And again, a few of them have dropped off. And that is perfectly fine. I don't want anybody to feel bad for that. But I also do want to highlight people that have chosen voluntarily to support financially and help me to pay for all the things related to this podcast. That would be hosting. That would be books, that would be equipment, that would be all of these different things. And so I really appreciate that. I appreciate the support. I also appreciate feedback. I've had a few people give me some feedback recently through email, and that is the best way to do so. So thank you very much for that. I would specifically like to hear more feedback on on this season, because it will be a little different than previous seasons, especially these first few episodes that are getting into concepts of theology and religious topics. I, I am curious uh, what you think of this as a listener. So uh, feedback on that specifically would be very helpful if you would like to send me an email, send me some feedback on that. I would really appreciate it. There are links in the show notes for uh, the Twitter account, the website for the podcast, uh, the support pages with Patreon Subscribestar, 
uh, anything else. There are links in the show notes for all that stuff. There are also cryptocurrency addresses there if you want to donate that way. That is a way to donate without there being any possibility of censorship, without there being any fees taken out by another platform or another company or processing company or anything like that. So if that's something that you would want to do, feel free to do so. The addresses are there. Just know that if you want any perks associated with being a supporter, you've got to email me and let me know who you are so I can get you those perks because, again, it's not an automatic platform that will then give you access. It's just you sending me cryptocurrency directly. And so I need to do that manually. So please do let me know. I had somebody request that I put a Bitcoin Cash address on there, which I had not done. And I know if any of the people that were drawn to this podcast through the Venormani interviews. He is much more of a Bitcoin cash guy. So maybe some of you would be more attracted to that as well. But I've got other ones. I've got uh, most of the basics, Bitcoin and Litecoin and Monero and these types of things. So that's there. Please feel free to participate in any of that or not. I really appreciate you just being a listener. I appreciate the ratings and reviews that have come. Thank you very much. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.